Well, church, on January 10th, in 49 BC, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, the frontier boundary of Italy, supposedly uttering the now famous phrase, the die is cast. As Rome's leading general and a governor, Caesar had left to fight the Gauls in order to secure peace for the empire, and in his absence, his son-in-law, Pompey, leader of the Senate, betrayed him and issued a summons that Caesar leave his armies, return to the city in order to face judgment. With Caesar's governorship expired, Pompey hoped that he could marginalize his famous father-in-law and secure power for himself. Caesar, however, fearful, wise unto the consequences of arriving home without support, crossed the Rubicon with his armies, and he marched on Rome. And history records Pompey wisely fled, but ultimately was killed. And surprisingly, Caesar, we're told, wept when he was made aware of his enemy's demise. And in a Davidic manner, he ordered the death of those who had assassinated him. But now, with Pompey out of the way, Caesar was free to assume his governorship once more. However, Caesar was more concerned with the clear instability revealed by Pompey's insurrection and this instability of the republic. And so Caesar desperately desired to suppress all of the external armed opposition to Rome in these provinces. He wanted to create a strong and honest central government in Rome, as well as knit all of the disparate entities of this empire into a cohesive unit. And so a year later, in 48 BC, Caesar had himself appointed dictator because he believed this would enable him to enact all of these reforms he believed necessary to secure these ends. Over the next few years, Caesar made great strides in each of his endeavors. With the military might of Rome behind him, he was able to crush all of the opposition in the provinces. The last of Pompey's supporters fell the year later in 47 BC, along with Cato, his other enemy, the year after that. And with all of these external enemies now stymied, Caesar seemed sure to fulfill all of his plans to fortify the empire. With Mark Antony at his side, with support of the entire Senate, so it seemed, Caesar was set. No one could have anticipated, least of all Caesar, what was to come, as in events and with words that have to this day come to designate ultimate betrayal, several supporters. And one of those was his good friend, Brutus Albinus. These senators intercepted their illustrious leader on his way to a simple Senate meeting, and they assassinated him. So where Caesar had believed his greatest threats lay outside the empire, in the end it was those closest to him who were the cause of his undoing. And friends, in, to this point in our examination of the judges, we've seen God's people regularly face the threat of outside opposition and oppression as a consequence of their sin, with the result being Israel's destruction. We've studied the story of Othniel with Kushan Rishatayim, where it was the Arameans who ravaged Israel. We've seen the tale of Ehud, where it was the Ammonites, and as well as the Amalekites, and then it was Shamgar with the Philistines, and then Deborah with the Canaanites, as well as Gideon, as we saw two weeks ago with the Midianites. And in each of these instances, Israel's sin has led to outsiders invading and then destroying the land in light of God's justice. But Israel's sin hasn't always, or in this case, needed to come from without, as we're going to see today. God didn't require foreigners to ravage and discipline his people, as Abimelech, the destroyer of Israel, arose from amongst God's people. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you'd find Judges chapter 9 with me. Judges 9. Because last week, we completed our look at Gideon's leadership, and today we come to the story of his son, 
Abimelech, which is recounted in chapter 9. But before we jump into Judges 9, I'd like to make a point for this morning, a first point, if you will, and that is the peril of forgetting. The peril of forgetting. When we began this Judges journey some two months ago, we noted in chapter 2 and verse 10, author's condemnation following Joshua's death, that another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And as God's people forgot, we saw they sinned. And that's as chapter 8 here in Judges concludes. This is exactly what we see happening again. Verse 33, we read these words of chapter 8. No sooner had Gideon died then the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berit as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that's Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. And these verses reveal a frightening twofold forgetting where first Israel again forgets Yahweh. Only in this act, it's not that Israel can't recall God and all the glorious things that he's done for them. It's as one pastor theologian explains, when the text condemns Israel for not remembering, it's not suggesting that Israel forgot the identity of Yahweh, nor even that they could no longer list the enemies from whom Yahweh had rescued them. It means that what they knew of Yahweh exercised no control over them. It held no grip on their loyalties, if you will. They, they could still answer catechism questions about Yahweh, but that knowledge did not determine their commitment. And friends, I believe we're often tempted to mock Israel for their selective memory, but as a nation with ready access to the scriptures and a heritage in which God's word has informed our morality, recent laws would suggest that we too have forgotten the Lord. How, how can we condone in law the murder of innocent children? How, how can we bless lifestyles that are wholly at odds, odds with God's word? And, and, and how can we teach these things in our schools? And so often I think that we read these stories and, and we assume that Israel's problem was simply one of ignorance. They, they just didn't know any better. And if they had, and they'd only been enlightened, then certainly they would have never adopted the immoral practices of their primitive pagan neighbors. But church, the reality is that the urban or the, the developed, culturally advanced peoples of the day were these Canaanites and Ammonites and Midianites. They were sophisticated Compared to Israel, they were cool, not country. They were the ones setting fashion trends and developing the new tech, if you will. It wasn't like Israel was intellectually superior by the standards of the day. And in this forgetting, they simply exhibited a moral regression to caveman-style reasoning. No, now, the values that, that they held, that's Israel reflected, with a pra and reflected the practices in which they were engaged in. Israel was old-fashioned, so to speak. They were antiquated when it came to spirituality and morality. Israel's forgetting was more of a leaving behind the, the simplicity of monotheism and of embracing the excitement and the ethos of polytheism. And church, I believe that the temptation Israel faced is the same that we face today. God, God's way is just so outdated. I mean, who could so narrowly define sexuality and marriage today with all that we know 
by biblical standards? Who could call for relationships reflecting biblical principles and not be laughed at or in the least dismissed as being Victorian, right? Church, we face the same temptation, I believe, that Israel did to allow what we know of God and his word to have no bearing on our lives in the present or to allow culture's values and perspectives to dictate our interpretation of God's word, thus justifying our practice of sin. Israel forgot Yahweh, but we're told they also forgot Gideon. Had Israel remembered Gideon and all that he had done to save Israel, then they wouldn't have failed to show kindness to his family, as we read there in verse 35. And this is a big deal, as we'll see, because our author comes back to this and speaks to it again in chapter 9, verse 16 and through 20. Now, as Christians... The scriptures are clear that we are not to deify people. In Acts 10, Luke records the Apostle Peter's visit to Cornelius' house in Caesarea where he's met at the door and Cornelius, we're told, immediately fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up saying, stand up, man. I'm just a man myself, just like you. And this same principle is later applied to angels in Revelation 19 where John falls at the feet of his angelic messenger only to be told, verse 10, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. So we aren't to deify God's servants. However, we are called to esteem them highly. In 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 12 through 13, Paul writes, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And sadly, as sinful people, we we not only struggle with hero worship, but I believe we also find ourselves much handier with the blade of criticism than with the trowel of encouragement or edification. And we both failings, we set ourselves up for discouragement because no one can live up to the expectations that we have of them and thus that we demand of our heroes. And so they always disappoint us, don't they? And when we undermine our leaders and we fail to follow their godly direction, we will face the consequences. Israel forgot, and unsurprisingly, they experienced leadership problems. The problem of leadership as modeled for us by Abimelech. And so let's read Judges 9 now, beginning there in verse 1. Our writer continues. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers, in Shechem, and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you to have, all seventy Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. They gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-berit, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Afra and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beit Milo gathered together beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And let's, let's pause there and just make a few observations. First, isn't it a shame that Gideon disobeyed the Lord and took many wives and a concubine who lived in Shechem. I mean, hindsight is always twenty-twenty, right? But how true. If God, or Gideon rather, had only obeyed God, Abimelech 
might never have been born. And all the deplorable things that we just read about would have never been committed. And church, such, such a simple truth. And yet it's one with such far-reaching ramifications. Sin always has consequences. And while God does forgive and he does cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we still live with those consequences, don't we? Be, be it from cancer, from lifestyle choices, or complicated family relational dynamics due to divorce and remarriage, or the decision to just cover something up in the moment rather than addressing it, letting it fester. God redeems us, yes, when we turn to him, but we are left to live with the consequences of those life decisions. Abimelech was one such consequence, who sadly was both treacherous and motivated, whether it was because he was looked down on by his 70 siblings because he was from Shechem, who can say? But what is clear from our text is that Abimelech had a plan. The man had a plan as he first secured the support of his mother's family. Second, we see there that he enlists his relatives to secure the support of the Shechemite aristocracy. And, and in this passage here, our NIV is a little misleading because it renders verse 2 there as, ask all the citizens of Shechem, where it ought to be, if you have an ESV or a Holman, it ought to read as they translate this, the leaders, ask the leaders or the, the lords of Shechem, because the original term is actually a form of that Baal Berit that we see mentioned, verse 4, which refers to a temple, and it literally is translated as one who owns a treaty. So ask those who own the treaty. And so what, what Abimelech is appealing to here is the Shechemite lords to lead that entire city to enter into a treaty with him. And you've got to admit the guy's good. I mean, he's a first-rate politician because who wouldn't want the simplicity preferred by a single leader over 70, especially one who's family, right? I mean, Abimelech knows how to sell himself, and it works as the city agrees to finance his operation to get rid of the existing order, providing him with 70 shekels, we're told, which basically one commentator observes are used to hire hitmen one shekel for every targeted victim. And friends, what I find so striking about this action is not only the hubris that Abimelech exhibits, but it's how his pride so devalues everything, everyone that's around him. Now, granted, the prices of slaves would most likely varied from century to century, but according to Leviticus chapter 27, verses 3 through 7, an adult male slave was worth 50 shekels, 50 shekels. A female slave was worth 30 shekels. You notice how Abimelech offers 70 for 70 sons, royal princes. So that's one shekel per prince. On June 22nd in 1941, Hitler's Axis armies began what was now called Operation Barbarossa. This was the name given to the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. And I'm sure as many of you likely recall from high school history, this was one of Germany's great blunders, if not the greatest blunder in the war. And at first things rolled along smoothly, but when the winter set in and with Moscow yet to fall, Hitler refused to stall his plans and await warmer weather. In his arrogance, his hubris, for his army's invincibility, he committed his men to battle through that brutal Russian winter at the cost of 830,000 lives. So fixated was that man on his glorious end that he viewed everything and the one around him as nothing but a pawn. 
And church, I pray that none of us ever become so consumed with ourselves that we lose sight of the fact that every human being is made in God's image. Whatever decisions we face, may we not let self-love lead us to devalue and marginalize others. Abimelech secured his mother's family support. They, in turn, were told, helped him to win Shechem's leader's vote, at which point where he leads his hirelings, the 30 miles to offer, and subsequently slaughtered his siblings on one stone. Now that reference to one stone is likely uh, descriptive of, of an abattoir's rock, as you see mentioned later on in 1 Samuel 14.33, which suggests that Abimelech's actions here weren't this a surprise attack. This wasn't a, a quick annihilation of, of unsuspecting victims. Rather, this was a cold, this was a calculated execution of those who knew what was coming. So with his family brutally finished off, the fourth step in Abimelech's plan was his official installation as king by Shechem's aristocracy, which we're told was taking place beside the great tree at the pillar that was likely just a sacred site for the city's bell worship. But again, here's a telling detail that our author gives us, displaying that dual wickedness that we mentioned at the very beginning. Here, Israel has clearly forgotten the Lord, worshiping Baal at this great pillar. Abimelech has just as clearly forgotten Gideon's family, his father's family. So Abimelech's coup has worked. All that's left is for the celebrations to begin. But no, no sooner has the music begun, you know, Abimelech has seemingly picked up his sax to play, then this voice cuts through the jubilance. So look back at verse 7. We continue. When, when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the Mount of Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves, they said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next the tree said to the fig tree, come, be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, come, be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, Come, be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jeroboam and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life, to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you've revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he's your brother. If then you have acted honorably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beit Milo, and consume Abimelech. And then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid, rightly so, of his brother Abimelech. So Jotham's clearly freaked out, rightly so, by all that's transpired. And yet, despite certain fear, he steps up and delivers a word of judgment from a nearby mountain, granted, because when he's done, he wants to be able to escape. 
But I love Jotham's story here because it's simple and its point is apparently unmistakable. Now, in my opinion, it's clear. But scholars continue to debate whether Jotham's fable is an ideological or a political statement. And that means that it simply shows or it reflects how vigorously true Israelites rejected this whole institution of kingship put forward. And in this view, the olive fig vine's arguments are understood to be the rejection of kingship to remain in their God-given roles. And it's possible. But I believe, along with the majority of other commentators, that the main concern here from Jotham's fable is given us in verse 14 and 15. And that's where we see the foolishness of the trees and the uselessness of the bramble. It says one pastor theologian notes, the problem here isn't kingship. Rather, it's the character of the king and his cronies. Brambles make good fuel, but poor kings. They burn better than they rain. And church, I believe there's a sad irony to Jotham's fable here as people tend to accept bramble leadership, don't they? American journalists War correspondent William Shirer saw this firsthand, witnessed this in September of 1934 when he attended the Nazi party celebration in Nuremberg. Reporting on all that he witnessed, Shirer wrote, the words he uttered, meaning Hitler, the thoughts he expressed often seemed to me ridiculous. But that week in Nuremberg, I began to comprehend that it didn't matter so much what he said, but how he said it. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a rapport almost immediately, and it deepened and intensified as he went on speaking, holding them completely spellbound. In such a state, it seemed to me that they easily believed anything he said, even the most foolish nonsense. Over the years, as I've listened to scores of Hitler's major speeches, I would pause in my own mind to exclaim, what utter rubbish, what brazen lies. But then I would look around at the audience. His listeners were lapping up his every word as utter truth. Frightening. And yet history is replete with stories of men and women succumbing to bramble leadership, isn't it? So-called saviors who've come to set us free. Jim Jones, David Koresh, Idi Amin, Kim Young. And it goes on, the list goes on. Why, church? And I believe the answer is because we are all dead in sin. Our principal problem is not physical or emotional or intellectual. It's spiritual. It says Jesus told those in Jerusalem who'd been following him, men and women who'd, who'd listened to him and watched him heal. In John 5.43, he declared, I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in their name, you'll accept them. Church, we don't need another leader who calls for us to try harder, love more, and hate less. We need a redeemer, a savior, who heals our hearts, forgives our sin, and sets us free. And this is not a work that we can accomplish on our own. Only God saves us by his grace, through faith in Jesus. Do we know him? Have we experienced his freeing grace? So Jotham warned Israel of their leadership problem. But then he escaped the beer before the process of judgment began. The process of judgment. It's our third point for this morning. So would you look back with me now to verse 22 there in our story where it continues. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit 
between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem met on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. So it didn't take long, just three years before relations began to break down between Abimelech and his constituents. And I doubt as we read this, anyone was very surprised. Now, some may have been, but only by how, how long it took for things to fall apart in light of recent political fallout. But what does surprise, I would imagine, some of us this morning is that phrase, verse 23, God sent an evil spirit. That's a statement that's then reiterated, verse 24, where our author states, God did this. God did this. So what are we to understand here? And at first glance, it would appear that the God whom the scriptures declare is utterly holy and incapable of sin, of even looking at sin here, is actively directing evil. <laughs> and he is. Now, the evil that's reflected by this term isn't that of a moral nature, but a destructive one. Meaning God caused the relations between Abimelech and Shechem to break down. Just as God meant the evil directed toward Joseph, described in Genesis 50, verse 20, for good. And friends, in his sovereignty, the God of the Bible never reacts reacts to events in his creation by conforming unanticipated outcomes to his goodwill. Let me say that again. In his sovereignty, the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, Yahweh, never reacts to events in creation by conforming unanticipated outcomes to his goodwill. Because if this were the case, then we would have to understand Christ's coming to earth to initially have had ulterior motives, which were tragically derailed when Jesus was betrayed and then sentenced to die, at which point God miraculously salvaged this plan and redirected the outcome such that a horrific murder resulted in a glorious resurrection. But this, not the, this isn't the story that Scripture tells at all, is it? The Gospel tells us how God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to live and to die for sinful humanity. And then after three days rise again. Now, whoever repents of their sin and believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. In this story, God's story, the gospel's story, God directed evil, horrific suffering for his glorious purposes. And church, this is exactly what I believe we see being played out here in the pages of Judges 9 because it's what we encounter time and time again throughout the scriptures as God, we're told, hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 7. God is the one who sent an evil spirit to torment Saul, according to 1 Samuel 18. God is the one who oversaw Satan's oppression of Job throughout the book of Job. And how God oversaw the blindness of the man in John chapter 9. And these are just a few of the many illustrations to this end. God is sovereign, church, over everything, good and evil. Because if he weren't, what hope would we have in the face of our adversary? I mean, if God wasn't supreme, then just think, the best that we could hope for, the best that we could hope for would be a quick reaction whenever we encounter evil, to limit our suffering and hopefully to relieve our pain. But 
if our God is as Scripture presents Him to be, then with God's providential care over evil and His direction of it, then we can know whenever we encounter it, it will be always used for our good and His glory. And that's exactly what the Scriptures teach us in Romans chapter 8, isn't it? And so God directs here in Judges 9 this public relations meltdown, which culminates in a man named Gael, son of Ebed, being endorsed as a potential successor to Abimelech, at least for these inhabitants of Shechem. No longer, it appears, content to support family. Shechem's ready for a change, and Gael presents a positive alternative. However, shrewd, sinister leader that he is, Abimelech has spies, we're told, in Shechem, who inform him of the people's plans. And so before Gael's able to effect any kind of significant leadership change, Abimelech arrives, and in fulfillment of Jotham's curse, he sends out fire to consume them. And then in verse 46, we read, how on hearing this, on hearing this, whether this there is the news of Abimelech's slaughter of Shechem's inhabitants, his destruction of the city and sowing salt over it so that nothing will ever grow there again. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem, so clearly this is the final stronghold of the city, which hasn't yet, it would seem, fallen to Abimelech's hordes. So on hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El Barit, when Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalman. He took an axe and cut off some branches which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. Next, Abimelech went to Tebez and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped the upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so they can't say a woman killed him. So the servant ran him through. It's very revealing, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. Church, such a violent end. And one that despite fulfilling Jotham's curse. It leaves us as readers wholly dissatisfied, doesn't it? I mean, our hearts cringe, should, at the thought of the men and women, the thousand men and women, boys and girls that Abimelech destroyed by fire. And we're left then somewhat shell-shocked when he meets his own violent end and seemingly, seemingly avoids lasting shame as his armor-bearer manages to run him through before he dies. Abimelech was a total failure as a leader. And if you read the story of King David, recorded later on in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll find that Abimelech even failed to avoid lasting scandal. Because Joab, as he's defending the death of Uriah the Hittite, preps the messenger who's going to carry this word to King David. And he says that when the king asks you, and his anger flares, why in the world did you get so close to the city to fight? You know, didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so he died at Tebes? When he asks that, tell him that Uriah has died as well. So 
Abimelech fails to lead and he fails to avoid scandal. God's process of judgment, as our chapter concludes, is complete. So what, what are we then to learn or take away from this story, church? And I believe the answer is tied to God's fulfillment there of Jotham's double-edged curse. This entire episode is about God's judgment as he demonstrates to Israel that destruction can come from within just as well as from without. From Israel, just as well as from Midian or the Amalekites or Canaanites. And church, the beauty of God's judgment as revealed in this story is found, I believe, in the fact that he doesn't overlook injustice, does he? He doesn't turn a blind eye to Abimelech's sin or to that of Shechem's. There's a certain irony revealed even in this judgment as God uses evil in the form of Abimelech to destroy evil represented by Shechem. It's a fact that we see repeated if we were to turn to Revelation 17. It's there. John describes how the Antichrist and his cronies one day will hate and consume the very anti-God culture that they've nourished all these years. Church, God in his great love for his people does not let them alone, but he provides them with hope, a great salvation that we see pictured here in the book of Judges. And he doesn't abandon them to their Abimelechs, does he? But he keeps his people from utter destruction. And so in a way, just as we spoke about with our children, God doesn't leave his people alone. But he works in their lives, be it through an Abimelech, or be it through an Amalekite, or a Midianite. Internal or external, God raises up oppressors to lead his people to realize their desperate need of his grace, of his salvation that's come through Jesus. This is our only hope, church. This morning, if you're facing an Abimelech in your life, maybe it's an Amalekite. Maybe it's a Kushan Rishatayim from outside. But if you're facing God's judgment, be encouraged. The writer of Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those that he views as his children. And he does so that we might learn to rely on him and him alone. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, and you're experiencing opposition, then know your only hope rests in Jesus. The whole picture of what we see in this story is how God's judgment, his beautiful judgment rightly described, leads us to the realization that we cannot save ourselves. Our only hope rests in Jesus. Have you experienced God's great salvation. Let's pray as we close. Father, you are good. And we thank you for how your word so vividly pictures our need of saving. Father, in our culture today, so sterile, Lord, we read these stories and are often just offended by the brutality and just the ugliness of violence. Father, we like things to be clean and neat, and, and we don't see this in Scripture. God, and yet it reveals to us just how broken we are. Father, how prone we are to these same ugly expressions of rejection of what you have done for us. Father, sin has marred us completely. And our only hope rests in your grace. A grace that we see 
so beautifully pictured. Once again, as you did not allow your people to remain under the harsh oppression of Abimelech, but rather you brought salvation. Father, thank you that you extend that same grace to us through the heard word of the gospel. Father, you've made clear that it is through hearing your word that men and women are brought to life. The word of our sin and our need of a Savior who is Jesus. God, I pray this morning, having heard that promise of hope, that life, that your spirit would take those words and bring life where it's absent. Bring hope where there's despair. Bring joy where there's sadness. For this is only a work that you can do. God, and it's only your spirit that can make it work. Lord, would you lead this morning some to a new and deeper, richer experience of grace. Lord, and for we who might be experiencing an Abimelech of sorts, Father, might we be reminded of your grace again, how great is your salvation, that you don't leave us. You are unwilling to turn your back on us, and yet you discipline us that we might see in your just and, and beautiful judgment the grace that we've been given in Jesus. Father, thank you for your gospel and for how great is your salvation. Jesus, we praise you and we ask these things in your name.